I'm Tracy V. Wilson, one of the hosts of the podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class. We have just put out a new episode on Jeanne Barre. She is the first woman known to circumnavigate the globe. We did that episode thanks to sponsorship from the all-new 2020 Ford Explorer, and we want to thank them for sponsoring the show. Stay tuned for some favorite clips from that episode. For his part, Carmersal claimed that he was totally surprised with this entire revelation, writing that Beret was, quote, a courageous young woman who, taking the clothing and temperament of a man and the curiosity and audacity to circumnavigate the world, accompanied us without us knowing it. Uh, I think he might have been covering his own tail there. <laughs> he really... Uh, <laughs> It is just bordering on impossible that you would not have recognized her. If you like what you heard just now, give us a listen. Check out Stuff You Missed in History Class on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1076.ez2613, certificate number 31616. The Rite of Spring Riot. Up until this point, the post-human listeners of the distant future have not heard us mention one of our favorite things, the art of ballet. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Rite of Spring, which I always associate with uh, heavy petting. Is that, that's your Rite of Spring? Yeah. <laughs> heavy petting. It's the season of heavy petting. My Rite of Spring is like replacing all my sprinkler heads. We have a very different <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> uh, but uh, ballet, you're absolutely right. One of the one of the preeminent human uh, accomplishments. Pretty much the the great human accomplishment. Yeah. It's all led to this point. It's our highest form. Uh, but we have not mentioned it on the show at all, I believe. So hmm. it's funny to imagine all these cuttlefish people right. who know everything about government cheese, but have no idea we also did ballet. Have no idea that we perfected uh, being human. So just so you guys know, we did ballet. It went fine. Not, not us personally. John and I did ballet. We did, we were taking classes now. Have you? What are you? What is your experience with the ballet? You have a little diaphanous little daughter. Does she do ballet? She uh, she tried, but I think she's too she's too stout to to have a career in ballet. And, right. And so I I figured 
let's eliminate the later disappointment by redirecting that energy to something else. Modern dance. Katie's doing tap right now. Kickboxing. Tap's fun. Tap is fun. And we do tap around the house. but Uh, Just not even for... Just like... Because I show her YouTube videos of Shirley Temple movies. And various, like, That's, we follow the tap. That explains a lot. Do you feel like you've kind of molded your daughter by the <laughs> curly top clips you've, you've shown her? But uh, when I was a uh, younger, when I was a, when I was 17, uh, no, when I was in my 20s, you know, here we have, um, here in Seattle, we have the Cornish College of the Arts, which had a, a ballet program. And during that period, I lived... In the yeah, you lived nearby. I lived in the artistic neighborhood around artistic people. You had an artistic loft of I some did. kind. I did. I was an artistic person myself, and so I dated several ballerinas over the course of a compressed amount of time. You're a serial ballerina dater, such that I be, the, such that I, I I had to ask myself at some point, is this a do you have a ballerina problem? <laughs> and you know, eventually, I I I. Uh, I just sort of moved away from the the ballerina years, but uh, it's but a dark, I learned a dark chapter for you. But I learned a lot about dance and about the trials and tribulations of yeah. standing on point. Yeah, talk to any ballet dancer, and yeah. you'll just hear how awful it is. I mean, the idea is to look graceful and comfortable while doing the most unnatural, uncomfortable things. But the whole the whole ballet culture. I mean, they become very body obsessed and yes. and like compulsive workouts and i had a uh, i mean one of my very closest uh ballet friends let's let's say ballet friend um she would dance all day then run to lake washington from capitol hill jump in the lake swim out to the buoy or whatever swim back any time of year yep and then run back up to capitol hill that's and, that russian <laughs> influence in the ballet still and then she would teach uh, she would teach yoga then at the end of the day. And I'm like, look, like, sweetheart, we need to go to the movies sometimes too. Like we're, we, we have to take a break from exhausting ourselves. And she was like, I'm fine. Ah! Yeah. Ballet is just a way to propagate eating disorders. It's not the other way around. Yeah. And, and like compul- like compulsive work, like self-flagellation, like you're saying the Russian model of yeah. just like punish yourself to get better. Like the fact that there's, um, can you imagine if we were podcasting and all the time in front of a big mirror? We're, we're, huh. You might like it, actually. <laughs> do you, well, do you think we should? I mean, when I look across the table at you, I see a mirror image of am I, me. Am I doing all your expressions? <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, but ba- ballet. That, <laughs> Are those my expressions? <laughs> oh, oh, yes, this is my big jovial John Roderick <laughs> affect. <laughs> hey, come in. I'm expensive. <laughs> Do you ever say that? Do you ever say I'm expensive to people? Expansive or expensive? Expansive with an A. You're not that expensive. Well, I, maybe if I said, how, "What come in, I'm expensive. <laughs> come in, I'm expensive. <laughs> My life would improve. Is that what you say when you walk into Value Village? Or uh... No, but I should when I go into like City Hall. <laughs> I should walk into all those city council meetings and say, I'm expensive. This should be you coming into the venue like for a big show. Hello. I'm the headliner. I'm expensive. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We've been expensive. Good night. But ballet is something you do in front of a big mirror. Right. The, the point being that you can see every little imperfection in every angle. Right. And I don't know if it attracts that kind of personality or it adds to it, but uh, that's also been my experience with the dance people I know. My sense is that, uh, that sort of like super competitive uh, tumbling or... Um, uh, like Olympic 
level uh, gymnastics gymnastics or super com- what if they just renamed gymnastics super competitive tumbling <laughs> super competitive tumbling. You got a great sct finals tonight bob costas but uh like those things at a certain point you i mean even more than other competitive sports there's just no room for error or any like you just have to be born to do it in a way born and then relentlessly train for your whole life um we have a friend whose daughter dances ballet, like good enough to. She's danced with Pacific Northwest Ballet, and I think no, nobody just ever sees her. She has yeah. she has the busiest life, right? Because that's that's what you do. But you'd also have to be. I mean, I could never have done it, no matter what I did. You don't have right? the le- you don't have the uh, the legs for it. I just don't have the yeah. It's uh, or whatever the build is. Like it, it, you could be you could have the perfect build and just not have the eye of the tiger. There's a there's certainly a kind of cult about it. I mean, my impression from not knowing anything about the world of ballet uh, is that it's it's a it's that people love the purity and the rigor of it. You know, it, it's a real simplicity. Like we've perfected dance in these five positions, and this is as good as dance gets. Now we're going to wear the simplest possible costumes and do these like series of very simple moves, but we're just going to do them the absolute best and most fluidly you've ever seen them done. And a small cult of people is going to recognize that. Uh, it's not for, you know, if you're, a, if you're a newbie, go to modern dance, go see something with a little more spectacle and surprise and suspense. Like I, when I see a, you know, tra- when Trey McIntyre's dance guys come through town, do you ever see any modern dance? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like I get it. I'm like, yeah, look at these people doing this crazy thing. There's just so much going on. It's modern, like a circus. Modern dance utilizes a lot of ballet. And I imagine it's because there are a lot of ballerinas that are like, okay, I'm, I, I got to get off this crazy train. Well, I think it's also because ballet is just like the fundamentals, right. you know, like we don't ever try anything crazy. We just do these, this tiny group of things in our tutus. But I really enjoy modern dance. I think, yeah, you know, too. some of those shows are, uh, are, yeah, they're, they just connect with you emotionally. At a, it kind of mixes the, it kind of mixes like what you get out of athletics, like watching somebody do some amazing high hurdles run or, or, uh, with, um, yeah, with like seeing, feeling like you've seen some artistic creative exploration you've never seen before. It's not that different from speed skating, I guess, or super competitive tumbling. What's, and what's Sorry, crazy? I, I said speed skating, but I meant figure skating. You knew what I meant. Yeah. What's yeah? Speed skating doesn't move me uh, I quite. Like <laughs> I couldn't really follow the narrative there. Were you trying to get to the end of the track faster than the finish guy? Around, around, and around. <laughs> but yeah, the the um, the analog of or like the compa- I guess the companion art of super competitive tumbling or gymnastics, as we say, like Simone Biles, I will watch her, um, her performances on YouTube and, you know, and get choked up. And it is not, what's interesting is it's not the weird tacked on dance moves that they put in those. Like she gets to the end of a, of a runner and then she does some little, Hey, and then she does like these crazy moves. I'm a little embarrassed actually during the little dance breaks. I'm like, Oh, come on me too. But, but it's just the pure physicality and the, and the, and her strength and her, her just, I mean, the way that she tumbles is in and of itself. It feels very artistic. It moves me artistic. And you don't get it from watching a kickoff return. Like it's not just the fact that you're seeing some, you know, the human body doing the absolute best it can do at a thing. There's something beyond that, just the fluidity of the 
the fact that the motion is choreographed in a way. Yeah, right. I mean, when Michael Jordan would fly through the air with his tongue out and put the basketball in the thing behind his head. It's great. I would go like, yeah, but I didn't, I never like cried. Right. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just not, maybe I'm. Sometimes if you were like a Western Conference fan, if you were a Sonics or a Jazz fan, you might cry. Yeah, Lakers but the, don't those people like teach themselves not to cry at a young age when they're like hitting each other with hockey sticks or whatever? Sports has so much failure in it. Like your team's, your team's hardly ever going to win. That's my theory of sports. Anyway, like so the, the purity of ballet and kind of the rigor of it is, is, is really one of the things at the core of the story of what happened on the night of May 29th, 1913. Oh. Which even if you... What, you're, you're you're amazed by that segue? Yeah, I was <laughs> just like, oh, we're getting we're going to go down to a to a granular level here. Uh, do you have any other broader points about the the ballet? No, I'm, like I, I was I, I I was having a good time explaining to the crustaceans uh, the the crustaceans with ears that listen to our show about just you know talking generally about dance, but we're going to talk about an event. It's probably the most famous events, maybe in any kind of modern art of the early 20th century and it's not always remembered accurately or contextualized was it a massacre it was kind of a massacre Mm. it was a massacre of taste and in some accounts of uh of actual human flesh uh Uh, it the the play the uh, ballet the stravinsky ballet ride of spring is called le sacre de printemps in french the uh the, 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 the heart the of right spring. Of, yeah, no, no, not not the not blood core. of spring. It's S A C R E. It's like the oh, the, the sacred. The, yeah, I guess right. The ritual of spring or something. The there's another word in in Russian. I think it means the coronation of, of spring. spring. Oh, uh, so spring is personified. Uh, maybe it's not. Maybe it's like the coronation that happens during spring. Maybe I don't know. But the point is that the, 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 there's often a pun made between sacra meaning ritual the, and massacre. You know, they would call it. Le massacre de printemps, the, the, the right of the the riot of spring. Hey, the, the pun works in English. That's nice. The riot of spring. It would be the riot of spring. Um, and they did that as a form of criticizing the ballet. Uh, it's what happened after the unusual events in the audience that night. This was a, a night out at the ballet where um, what was happening offstage was much more interesting than what's happening on. And this is true of me whenever I go to the Nutcracker. <laughs> I'm like much more interested in just whatever is happening around me than any of the dances. Is it the yeah did what happened in the audience, was it inflamed by what was happening on stage or unrelated? Uh, so there are the, the firsthand accounts of the event differ very much. And later accounts uh, tend to romanticize or mythologize the event or um, people claiming they were there who weren't or people they were there for, who were there for the premiere who were not. Um, so it appears, and everybody has a theory, and it appears to be a mixture of things. You know, just that whatever that weird alchemy that has to happen to turn a bunch of people into a crowd, whether they're, you know, cheerfully singing in some good cause, right. or whether they're, you know, putting... Uh, they turn against a comedian. <laughs> right, heckling <laughs> a comedian, or putting traffic barricades through car windshields, right. or lighting garbage cans on fire. I mean, Spontaneously dancing in a, in a mall because they read about it on the internet. Flash mobs. Yeah, this, it, in some level, this appears to have been a flash mob, some kind of a planned protest. But that's not the entirety of what happened. This was the first time that Rite of Spring, the great Stravinsky ballet, had ever been performed. It took place in Paris at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, a, a brand new, just beautiful, deluxe theater done in some kind of over-the-top 
Art Nouveau style. I think it was kind of German looking, but oh. it was, you know, the fanciest place to do ballet. But the resident troupe there was not French. It was uh, the Ballet Russe. Ser- of course. Of, uh, of the great ballet impresario, Sergei Diaghilev. Um, he had set up shop with a bunch of these Russian emigres in Paris, you know, a, a world dance capital. This is prior to the revolution, but... Just but, prior. Yeah. Just a few years. Um, and there's already been a massive wave of, of Russian emigres and expatriates coming west into Europe, maybe for political reasons, but maybe just to get to Paris where all the, where all the action is. Well, and you, uh, you know, Peter the Great encouraged his, um, his aristocratic class in Russia to all learn French as part of his modernization of Russia that happened when he made all the monks cut their sleeves and whatnot. And wear berets. Yeah. Remember when all the monks had to wear berets? <laughs> it was like, look, we're part of Europe. We are not part of Slobovistan. He like, he slaps this borscht out of somebody's hand. Pick up a baguette, damn it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's kind of an interesting time here because what's happening in St. Petersburg, of course, is that the French aesthetic is the highest possible thing. Everyone's speaking French and trying to paint like the French. Whereas in uh, Paris, the cool new thing for all the young boho types is Russian art and language. Interesting. So, they, so each each capital is like the respective cultural capital of the other's best stuff, which is really weird and hard to imagine today, given what Russia has become in our time. But um, that was uh, was that was Fabergé eggs era. Uh, that mm-hmm. was, it would have been like, uh, I guess it's a little early for Chagall, but, but, um, but that would have been like, for instance, uh, um, great Joseph Conrad was sort of writing, but I guess he's not in Paris. Exactly. Polish, but he emigrated to London. It was right. the same kind of thing. Right. He, he brought whatever his, his, the deeply felt Slavic roots. And, uh, that was just something that Western Europe really responded to, mm. you know, that's, it's novelty. Um, and this is a time when, uh, we're going to get to this, but where the arts are looking beyond, you know, twee Victorian, a certain kind of very limited Westernness. You know, what people like is when Paul Gauguin goes to Tahiti or Picasso gets really into African masks and uh, and other cultures are the are the hip new thing. Right. And there's Exoticism. Some, there's some level of orientalizing going on there, but I mean, you know— What's yeah. worse, to, 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 <laughs> to not know African art at all right. or to like kind of start, fetishize it? Yeah, to fetishize it. And I, mean, I, I feel like I can, I, can, I can live with the orientalization of the Russians. <laughs> it feels like, you know, I'll let that pass. This is going back to the reindeer wizards. We actually, we have a friend who does a lot of um, directing uh, the local school musicals just in the Seattle Public Schools here. It's kind of her her passion, and she does it every year. And at some local school, she was trying to do. She found a great version of Aladdin. She wanted to do, and I think the principal and the school board told her, "No, you can't do Aladdin." And she said, "Why?" And he's like, "Well, it would be just a bunch of white kids in harem pants. You know, it's it's a bad look. Right? Like, like do something. You know, do something that doesn't." That doesn't feel like appropriation. He obviously wasn't in the alternative culture in the early '90s because it was all just white kids in harem pants. Yeah, I, I still have my hammer pants <laughs> at the back of my closet. I'm, I'm ready if hammer time ever comes back. It's coming. <laughs> I, my, I take my kids to the closet and I say, "Kids, these are daddy's parachute pants. You can't touch this." Do do do. And they don't. They don't. Uh, but but that, it was kind of the same dilemma, like because she told them, you know, if you if this is the rule. I mean, she's not trying to do Raisin in the Sun in blackface. She's just right. trying to do a children's fantasy of Aladdin right. with little blonde kids and was told that's a bad look. And she's like, look, then all we can do is like all 
white European art. Like the, what you've said is our public schools can only have white European art. And they're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> oops, a daisy. Catch 22. But it's the same kind of thing. Would you rather have, would you rather have Europe thinking that, uh, right. Thinking that, uh, Asian or Tahitian art is not a thing, or would you rather them kind of getting a little too creepily into it? Well, you're, you're, uh, so your, your kids were in our town as they now do every every year, <laughs> yes, right? Every Just year. our town every year. <laughs> uh, Guys and dolls. They do Sound of Music every year because yeah. there's a lot of little kids in Seattle that look like Hitler Youth. So <laughs> it's, it's perfect. Hi, it's The Herd. This just in. It's officially fall, and that means a lot of things to a lot of people. The leaves are changing colors. Time to break out the pumpkins, break out the football, and most importantly, break out the truly hard seltzer. Truly has only 100 calories, but has 5% ABV and only one gram of sugar per container. It's the can't-miss drink of the season, so pick up Truly Hard Seltzer today. Truly, drink what you truly want. But accounts differ of what actually happened in the stands of the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées that night. They're, uh, in almost every account, their yelling starts almost immediately when the curtain comes up on the ballet. This quickly turns... You don't hear yelling much at the ballet? I mean... You seem surprised. Just generally, like halfway through a show, sometimes I'll stand up and say, This rules! <laughs> Do you want to go out with me? <laughs> hey! Uh, uh, water lily number six. Not you. Next to you. With the bun. <laughs> uh no i'm not accustomed to uh to riots breaking out at ballets but you know appreciation of the arts has dimmed in our time yeah, nobody cares enough yeah people are just looking at their watch to see if they'll make their dinner reservation what was the scandal or what was the conflict uh again it's hard to say it, it escalates into fistfights stampedes. Uh, it appears to be a conflict between different factions of the crowd, mm. which is interesting. Uh, a woman takes a, a long hat pin out of her elaborate hat and stabs the man next to her. Oh, this is just a Russian assassination <laughs> yeah. scenario. It's got polonium on it. <laughs> uh, in some accounts, the man she stabs is the poet and playwright Jean Cocteau. But um, <sighs> this is the kind of thing where that's the, the thing I'm least likely to believe is that right. some local celebrity is claiming to have been the one that it happened to. Right. And then Harry Houdini appeared. And then Mark Wahlberg could have been there to stop the riot, but he took a different <laughs> he took a different liner. Um, like in the end, it, what's what's sure is that. Uh, well, there, there are other funny accounts. Somebody in the orchestra says he saw many a gentleman's shiny top hat or soft fedora was pulled down by an opponent over his eyes and ears. What were people doing wearing their top hats after the curtain had come up? Maybe that's why somebody pulled it down. Uh, Could you get this lower on your head? I can't quite see, see that. All of this, all of these accounts start to seem uh, a little bit questionable. Nobody's wearing their top hat during the show. Uh, yeah, so people are brandishing canes. In mm. some account, they're challenging each other to uh, duels. Um, In 1913? In 1913. In, Who was dueling in, the in 1913? Well, also, how does it come up? Like, the orchestra presumably is playing very loudly. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get all the arrangements? It, apparently, by the it, people are comparing it to uh, an earthquake. Uh, the writer Von Vechten says that um, the man behind him is so wrapped up in all the general craziness that he he just starts pounding on the back of Von Vechten's hat. Like, bum, 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 bum. But like, he uses the guy ahead of him as a drum and doesn't even realize he's doing it. Which I I go to the movies all the time, and even when I'm very into Get Out or whatever, I never do that. You don't sit in 
just drum on the head of the, the bald man in front of me? Oh, sorry. I just, sorry. I just love Star Wars. Sorry. It's just Tony Stark was, oh, no. The thing is, well, you know, we complain about uh, having lost so much uh, in the passage of time. Everybody now at the ballet is just wearing a flannel shirt and, and like chewing tobacco. Uh, but one thing we also, what I think, I think people make the the uh, pretty good point that we've also lost a lot of inequality along the way, and we've also lost head drumming <laughs> and uh, like being challenged to duels at the theater, which I think is progress. Well, issues of class and dress in the theater this very night do indeed play into this. Uh-huh. Um, oh, but we should say, first of all, you're not exaggerating. Seattle is a city where people will wear f- flannel to the opera. It's very expensive flannel, though. That's what that's what confuses people, because if you challenge the guy and say, why are you wearing flannel? He'll say, oh, it's silk flannel made, you know, uh, like that was... This the, is a that vintage. a civet ate and then pooped out and yeah I mean it's uh, everyone in Seattle could be a billionaire that's why you have to be you have to tiptoe around the dress code the noise is getting so loud in the theater that um, that uh, the dancers can't hear the time and so Stravinsky has to run back to the wings and just start yelling at the dancers you know start counting at the dancers they, he didn't stop the show. No, uh, he sees. He immediately sees what's happening and runs backstage to try to keep it going. But the show must go on, John, as you know, in the performing arts. Wow. I mean, they do. So the theater does end up kicking out forty people, and in many accounts, police are called. Although it's hard to, it's hard to corroborate. Um, Did someone set off a fire extinguisher? <laughs> and uh, by the next week, it's in the New York Times. Uh, the the headline on the in the New York Times says Paris, Parisians hiss new ballet, Russian dancers latest offering a failure has to turn up lights. Manager of theater takes this means to stop hostile demonstrations as dance goes on. So it was about the show. From the the curtain goes up, the first dancers arrive on the stage, and and it's scandalous. People are immediately mad. Some people came mad. Some people beca- quickly became mad when they saw the staging, uh, and then everybody got wrapped up into it. And let's let's go into some of the reasons why. Is Stravinsky himself a divisive? Choreographer Stravinsky is very new on the scene. He is just coming off the Firebird and Petrushka, the two of the biggest hits in the ballet world. Diog- I, I guess he's a, he was the composer, not the not the he's dance. not he's not the choreographer. Right, right, no, right, right. he wrote the music. Uh, the the choreographer was by Vasily Nijinsky, who I think is also dancing the lead for Diaghilev uh, this night. Um, but Stravinsky is the one backstage. He knows the music, so he's trying to yell the count. To the dancers. Oh, and a, f- a funny thing about that is that in Russian, all the numbers very quickly become polysyllabic. So it's not really a one, two, three, four. Right. You know, he's he's having to be like <laughs> you know, and uh, it doesn't lend itself to right. to yelling at dancers as, as shoes are getting thrown at them, I guess. Um, but so he's he's the biggest new thing. Diaghilev has plucked him from obscurity because Diaghilev wants to produce modern forward-thinking ballet, and here's this new young guy. And even before he writes Firebird and Petrushka, he is thinking about a ballet based on the pagan rituals of his Russian uh, ancestry. Mm. You know, the, the spring fertility stuff. That seems very potent and ready for the dance, right? It does. And this is an era of, of more libertine arts, so maybe people are ready for a little bit of Paganism. Yeah, I mean, speaking of libertinism, Nijinsky has just danced the lead in Debussy's Afternoon of the Fawn. And uh, one of the things, one of the new positions he added to the ballet uh, vocabulary when he did that was he mimed um, uh, 
uh, touching himself in his dance belt area on the stage. And, and so there's kind of a graphic uh, dance belt yeah, touching. The afternoon of the fawn includes uh, a little a little me time for the uh-huh. fawn. And that is, <clears throat> you're saying that that's now part of the ballet lexicon. You can use that in any ballet. Yeah, you can just do it in the middle of a <laughs> middle nutcracker. Of, middle of a nutcracker. Yeah, you can. You, you don't want to crack them. No. no, no, no. <laughs> uh, so, so that's kind of a tension that's going on. Is that you know these these young Turks? They're not literally Turks, but they're from someplace almost as bad. Slavic places mm-hmm. are, are, are almost as bad. Are, 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 you know, in the in the eyes of a <laughs> sure, Parisian. Sure. Not to us. No. John and I, of course, agree that all cultures are exactly equal and, yes. and good and valid. Yes. All people are the same. But that was not the general opinion in the Paris arts scene. So this was at a time when, uh, <clears throat> and I think we see this all the time in the arts, right, where a form keeps evolving until it becomes, until it is evolving past where the audience wants to see the form evolve. We see it in rock and roll, right? Where Dylan goes electric. Yeah. That's and, not folk you know, anymore. And metal turns to speed metal turns to death metal. And yeah. and pretty soon it has to break off because the because the people that, that adored it at first um can no longer handle the the uh, the deviation. And I think ballet still ballet and classical music were still the dominant uh modes and there wasn't yet modern dance, modern there wasn't jazz yet, really. Right. And so this was in this transition. Am I getting that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about the music, because I think most retellings of this night really emphasize that the music was so avant-garde that this just changed. The audience freaked out. And this is the watershed moment that changes the course of 20th century music. That's what Leonard Bernstein was always saying. Um, because you did have composers like Debussy and Ravel that were kind of playing with uh, with with different kinds of you know music that was more impressionistic and was about rhythm instead of you know, kind of the, the mathematical perfection of, of how a lot of classical music, music worked, you know, Baroque music or, right. or then the romanticism of, of a Beethoven, for example. Um, but, but Rite of Spring is just, is notably harsh. Like it's, uh-huh. you, you're, the first thing you hear is uh, a sound you've really never heard. It sounds like maybe the oboist is having a stroke uh-huh. or something. It's really, uh, somebody, uh-huh. is, somebody is playing the bassoon, but too high. Like uh-huh. at, the, at the height of its range, it's screeching. A, it's a solo bassoon kind of screeching, and it's the effect you get when you like take a Casio and you're like, "I wonder what the piccolo sounds like," you know, two octaves <laughs> below middle C. You know, the, the the bassoon is not meant to sound like that. Right. And then as the piece goes on, the instrumentation continues to be very discordant. The woodwinds kind of twitter, and the brass really shrieks. It really feels like it's yelling at you, and the it's the whole thing is very driven by percussion. This isn't. I mean. Like shortly after this, the the idea of twelve tone music starts to um, revolutionize, I guess, music theory. Well, that's the thing. Compositional theory. There's all this weird stuff going on in this piece, which which uh, you know I'll, I can outline for you. But uh, the avant garde, the newness of it, is kind of overblown now, a century later, because as you say, like the the great composers of atonality and 12-tone system had already started working. Uh, Schoenberg's early work had come out. Webern had done his six pieces for orchestra. Like, so this was scandalous in tone, but in form it was still based, it was based it was actually, in a traditional world. If you listen to it today, if you listen to Rite of Spring today, you will think, boy, this is some crazy classical music. But you will think, yeah, this is classical music. Right. You will not think what has happened to the canon. <laughs> right. Um, and it, even at the time, what I'm saying is this is less experimental than, than what a lot of these bohemian 
right. folks would have been hearing when they go hear Schoenberg and Weber and say, this is the new thing. You know, just because there's, there is some experimentation, you know, the, there's in one movement called the Ritual of the Rival Tribes, the music is played at two speeds at once. In, yeah. in a three to two ratio. Oh, that's perfect. I love polyrhythm. There's your, there's your kind of you know, speed I metal use that, thing. I use that in my in the song Cinnamon, uh, the Long Winter song Cinnamon. In in Cinnamon, you have the the drums are playing in four four time, and the band is playing in in three four time. Did you get it from Stravinsky? No, I developed it uh, by accident. Can you imagine when... telling your bandmates, no, I want to try this Stravinsky thing, and they're all like, yeah, yeah dude. Man, right on. No, it was somebody was doing one thing, and I started doing another thing, and I was like, that's cool, let's record I've it. I've heard that song so many times, and I've never noticed that the that the drum thing sounds kind of a little off-kilter. Yeah, it only it, you know it only catches up with itself every, every, every 12. Every 12. The lowest but, common denominator. See, my daughter says she'll never need lowest common denominator, and I is. need to say, what if you're a drummer, honey? <laughs> What if all our dreams come true and you become a drummer? Yeah, what if you're playing in 1117 time? You better know. But Schoenberg wasn't doing ballet. Right. So this is the kind of thing you would go to at a concert hall and maybe applaud the uh, the, the the composer's bravery. Yeah, go and do, do it because it's difficult. But a bunch of people at the ballet are expecting ballet to be to observe these fundamental rules of ballet. And when they hear, uh, you know, just a, an 11-4 bar that's all uh-huh. bass drum... <laughs> or a demi semi quaver upbeat, or um, there's one particular movement called the sacrificial dance where um, Stravinsky could play it, but spent months trying to notate it because he could hear it in his head, but it was so complicated he couldn't actually get the orchestration on paper. Right. Um, I guess the opposite of the John Cage thing, where he could write it down but never expected anybody yeah, to like play Z- it. Yeah, it's like Zappa's Black Page. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's not what you expect to hear at the ballet, and and especially at the time when the French tradition is classicism and romanticism, and then Stravinsky is very definitely playing the notes you don't expect in the combinations you don't expect. It's it's just a lot of dissonance and, and discord, and it's perfect for the theme of a crazy Slavonic fertility ritual. Right. Um, oh, which I guess I've never said the plot of the ballet. Which, no. Which, who cares, right? Well, I've, I've been to a lot of ballets, and I never understood the plot of any one. My daughter gets so, got so furious at the Nutcracker. She got all dolled up in her Christmas best, yeah. and you know it starts with the big Christmas tree, and Clara gets the Nutcracker, and there's this intrigue with the the mouse king, and then they go away to a fantasy world, and her little eyes are gleaming. And I don't know if you've ever seen The Nutcracker, but the second act, there is no plot. It's just a series of dances. Yeah, They get to the fantasy's Christmas kingdom, and then they're like, hey, let's watch an Arabian dance. Ooh, now let's watch a Chinese dance. Now let's watch the Sugar Plum Fairies <laughs> dance. I struggled even to understand the plot of Tosca, but like I, I went to, the, a year or two ago, I was... Uh, I was seeing a young woman who asked me if I had ever been to, or no, she assumed I had seen the Phantom of the Opera. And I had to confess, I'd never seen the Phantom of the Opera, and I had never been to a musical on Broadway. I'd never seen a musical, I don't think. You'd never seen? <clears throat> I, I was, I think I performed in Side by Side by Sondheim. Uh, do you still know any of the music? Can you do uh, a little bit for us see. now? I don't think I have it re- ready <laughs> at hand. But we were in New York, and she said, I got us tickets to see the Phantom of the Opera. And I was like, wow, I'm finally going to see this legendary uh, show. And I went uh, and sat sort of, you know, like, was she? But they were good seats. And I was like, the Phantom of the Opera, here we go. The Phantom, he comes out, and he's lurking in the 
in the he's bell got, tower he's got or whatever his he does. Masks and I don't think it's he's under the opera. Under the opera. He's not above the opera. And um well none of us are above the opera. <laughs> but uh I watched the whole show and I was just like uh, almost completely unmoved. The plot seemed to be a very very thin sort of uh you know screen put put over the top of some okay songs. There were a couple that were there's some catchy. You know the uh, the the uh the masquerade Song? Masquerade. That, that was pretty fun. We are having masquerade. <laughs> masquerade. People people marched around the stage, but I walked out and I was like, that's one of the biggest musicals of all time? Is this really what... Uh, there's a reason I haven't seen these. I like how you came into being as a Broadway snob. Yeah, immediately. Like, you're like, hey, I've done Sondheim, baby. I'm not watching this crap. <laughs> I watched all... My dad took me to see all that jazz in... 1978, which was too early. I'm a Bob Fosse kid. It's great. You don't know anything about Broadway, and you're already a Broadway right. snob. Well, you know what? I'll be a snob about anything. That's that's the way to be. Yeah. My daughter uh, actually turned out to be a huge musicals fan, and I think that Nutcracker moment was very formative for her. She did not just want music and dance. She was like, what happened to the story? Uh, I see. Where are the numbers? Yes. Um, the numbers in Rite of Spring are pretty simple. The whole first act is a bunch of people do a bunch of different crazy springtime rights like sex they sex each other they don't they don't do afternoon of a fawn but but it's it's very um what are they doing gathering water from the well <laughs> what's the euphemism there's a train going into a tunnel <laughs> yes it's a train going into a tunnel <laughs> spring is here <laughs> let's take a train trip it's uh it's just that they're they're waving their arms and they're they're, they're there's a lot of flailing basically yeah, that's what i do every spring you come out of your cocoon and wave your arms. I mean, we should be clear that I think a lot of it's a lot easier to see near naked bodies now. So we underappreciate how much of the appeal of ballet was that rich Leotards. swells got to go see, you know, people in shape, very people in very attractive people in good shape wearing leotards. Yeah. Right. right, right. Like this is it's 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 very sexy. They're lifting each other up. Yes. You know, very little is, is left to the imagination. Um, today, the ballet seems extremely chaste. Yes. Uh, Although every once not, in a not while, not to you apparently with your <laughs> with your seven straight girlfriends, you're a balletto man. Yeah, I mean those that you know because you see the you see the lifting and the and the um, the, the, the splaying. Yeah, there's a lot of splaying. There is. There's a, there's a certain amount of you know you being able to hold your body in unusual positions. It it <clears throat> it, it raises quite a few questions. It, does. it doesn't beg them. No, no, no. It does not beg. But them. in your mind, in the audience, it raises them. It suggests. It's very suggestive. It suggests opportunities, really. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, and then the second act, after the intermission, there's a little more plot-driven. A, uh, a sacrificial virgin gets chosen. Okay. So there can't be too much going on in, in Act 1, because there's still a virgin in Act 2. Okay. And she's the At one At least who, one of them. And she, she essentially, she's the one who has to sacrifice herself to spring, and she basically dances herself to death. Huh. So sacrifices the, herself to spring. Yeah, spring needs a spring needs a, a virgin. Uh-huh. Spring needs blood. <laughs> so part of the part of the uh, the rite is that someone's got to die. But she doesn't get stabbed on an altar. It's it's told through ballet. So she gets so carried away that the dance herself, her own, uh, I don't know, uh, fertile, fertile, you know, the 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 fire of spring in her blood is what eventually takes her out. Yeah, it's sort of Sabine. Enthusiasm. Yes. Yeah. Nobody's nobody's capturing her. She's she's self captured. Persephone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Per, so per, yeah. So spring comes because 
Hades uh, captured, we often say raped, although not in the modern sense, right. I, I, maybe in the modern sense. Ravished. Uh, yeah, a, a, a goddess, a fertility goddess, and and took her away. And I guess that's what's being played into here. But not in a Greek mode, in a Slavic mode for sure. Right. Although the Slavs considered themselves the uh, the inheritors of the Greek. Hey, we've got backwards ends and ours, <laughs> they would say. Like, do you guys have backwards ends and ours? Uh, Stravinsky like kind of locked himself into a room in Switzerland, a tiny little room with just a piano and, you know, went nuts for, for months, uh, making these melodies with, with this idea he'd had in his head of, of, of ancient Russian fertility rhythms. And I guess his resource here was a folklorist named Nikolai Rerich, Rerik, Rerik, I think, who is such an interesting figure that I think he will be his own omnibus entry at some point. So CF Nikolai Rerik. This is, we're he, talking uh, about taboo rhythms here. These are, yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, it doesn't have the, uh, you know, within 10 years, they, there would be a, a seal of, of, uh, of African approval, you know, mm-hmm. that the, these are coming from the jungle. These are the authentic rhythms of a different land and a mysterious people. Right. Um, and it's the same appeal here. It's a different land and a mysterious people, but it, the, the people are Bulgarians, basically. You, you don't think of, you don't think of the the rhythms of Belarus. No, can as, you imagine the Belarusians <laughs> today saying, we invented jazz? <laughs> but Rarick is one of the, he's a folklorist, he's an archaeologist, he's a painter of historical Russian scenes and trying to, you know, reimagine Russia's uh, artistic legacy and heritage without any kind of Peter the Great foreign influence. And uh, the end of his story is fascinating in that it almost brings down FDR's vice president. There's a there's an alternate universe in which Wendell Wilkie wins the 1940 election because of a Nikolai Rarick scandal. And I'm not going to get into it now, but I think that's a pretty good omnibus yeah, candidate. Save that for the future. Problems. It's human nature to hate problems. But why is that? After all, problems inspire us to mend things, bend things, make things better. That's why so many people work with IBM on everything. From city traffic to ocean plastic, new schools to new energy, flight delays to food safety. Smart loves problems. IBM. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com smart to learn more. So Rarick designs the costumes for this and the staging for this ballet, the, the scenery, I guess you would say. So as the curtain comes up, people are not wearing the wispy, diaphanous leotards and tutus you would expect. Boo! They're wearing what looks like kind of baggy animal skins. Boo! Everybody's got pants. Like if, if you were told that it was an attempt at kind of Native American fashion, you would believe it, actually. It's 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 jerkins and, and whatnot. This is making me want to pound a guy's hat. The, da- <laughs> the dancers do not have buns. They have the opposite of buns, which are like long long kind of braids like huh. so they're they're wearing they're wearing their maybe wigs they have brunhilde they've got hair. kind of long brunhilde hair and instead of um you would expect maybe the 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 language of ballet with a few nods to to you know rural peasant dance and that's i think that's what the audience is expecting and that's not what they see at all nothing that is happening is graceful or sexy in any way yeah i mean i could see the ballerinas being dressed like a like halloween sexy tiger or whatever but not if they're gonna be like running around yeah they're they're literally kind of jerking their limbs they're they're stomping uh there's one movement called augers of spring which is just basically based on them just kind of stamping on the ground and throwing themselves at the ground so it's modern dance 
it's kind of modern dance. And the aesthetic of ballet is very aerial. It's upward. You know, it's, it's how can we slip the surly bonds of earth? You know, like let's pretend there's no gravity and this is super easy. Whoops. There goes gravity. <laughs> and instead, as Cocteau said, these people see knock kneed and long braided Lolitas doing this kind of bestial thing. Hmm. You see, maybe you're more interested than they were in, uh, in long braided Lolitas. <laughs> I mean, do they have to be knock need for you? Well, it helps. I can't go on record as being pro Lolita, though. Uh, Nijinsky did this on on purpose. He uh, he wrote, "I detest Nightingale and prose poetry." I guess all the the fripperies of uh, romanticism are not his bag. He says, "I eat my meat without sauce bernaise." Uh-huh. That's his big, uh-huh. that's his big artistic <laughs> statement. I don't need mayonnaise on my steak. Yeah, this is like you getting your chicken fried steak on the road. Yeah. Like uh I'm I'm that kind of a guy. Yeah, extra meat for a dollar, he says. And he drilled these guys for just 120 hours and told them um, you know, no facial expressions whatsoever. We want the audience to feel nothing. You guys should look impassive. Even even when the chosen maiden throws herself off the, you know, whatever her death is, it she, her face is totally calm, but she has what looks like a medical seizure, like a like a she's having a an episode. I've been to a lot of dances influenced by this. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody in the balcony apparently yelled "Undoctor" because she thought she was really in trouble in some some other way because the audience is out of control this time some other way says undentiste <laughs> he's my guy <laughs> tag yourself i'm undentiste somebody else says do dentist like two dentists which to me is doesn't yeah. really improve on the first Come guy's on, don't, joke don't tell it don't tell a comedian his own joke don't joke the joke um but but uh but how are the dancers how do they feel about this performance are they are they uh, were they going along with the with the composer kind of under duress or they do what they're told Nijinsky is the great genius in ballet you know he's kind of the angry young man and you know his other work has been a huge has been a huge hit I think my guess is if they're anything like young artistic people today oh sure they're excited to be doing something that are pissing off the swells yeah they can't wait to pee on the American flag there's two groups of people in the crowd um as, as you've kind of hinted you might see them at a, at the at Seattle Opera today, there's there's definitely the people who have all dressed up for this, who are sitting in the boxes. They've got their mink yep. furs, and they've got ostrich feathers coming out of their elaborate hats. And uh, they're there to hear beautiful melodies. Right, and it's a it's social event. It's a it's a class reinforcer. See and be seen. Yeah. But then other people are just hardcore fans of this new ballet, and they're the young bohemians right. wearing their little uh you know, their little soft hats sure. and bringing their girlfriends in, in like bandeau kind of dresses. Right. Their shoes have spats <laughs> exactly. or they don't have spats even worse. And what they, and it makes them mad that people have paid for the expensive box seats who don't get the ballet. Oh, I've been to this concert too. So there's two kinds of people <laughs> there. Have you ever performed at this concert? Uh, let's see. You know, I've, uh, because my recording career didn't start until I was 32 years old. I never was, one of the young punks that was overturning the established musical style. You were, was, you were like just doing a Neil Young cover. Yeah, I was the I was the guy in the middle who was like, "I've got indie rock happening for you." But you know, indie rock was a, was <laughs> that was weird that you would start with that lyric though. Like, <laughs> indie rock was was rebel. It was quiet as the new loud, right? It was yeah. rebelling by being milder, exactly, which was hard to start. A sword fight over. 
but it was kind of a you know that kind of a new romanticism happens very often. Yeah. I mean, it, new wave coming out of punk, um, and it, it it is kind of a you know you know what's really badass vulnerability and my feelings. Yeah, bitches. I'm gonna turn my guitar down. <laughs> Take that, mom. In the crowd, but even among these groups, there's uh, there's other kinds of geopolitical forces at work, and I think this is kind of what gets to the so so the the place is a tinderbox ready to go off because. The audience is divided in half and they hate each other. Right. And they've already come in knowing that they're going to see these bad boys, Diaghilev and Nijinsky and Stravinsky. And they are, they already have preset opinions. A lot of skis at the end there. And so it was an immigration <laughs> crisis as well. Okay. That, so that's a big issue. There's a lot of anti-Russian sentiment in Paris right now. The Dreyfus affair has happened. And so you've got this overlapping anti-Semitism with anti-Russian. The idea is that... Out-of-towners are coming in, and they are polluting the purity of the French arts. Right. I mean, then is now, France is a country that really places a lot of value in its, the uniqueness and the, I don't want to say purity, but the authenticity right. of its French artistic heritage. From a bourgeois. Right. Uh, like, you, you, know, uh, you know, we invented... Language and culture. Everything, yeah. That's what they would have you believe. We invented cheese and neoclassicism, <sighs> and, you know, we don't need a bunch of Slavs and Jews coming in here. Right. And... Interrupting t- our glass-blowing classes. Telling us... <laughs> yeah, interrupt. Exactly, because that's what would happen. You'd be right in the middle of blowing a beautiful little Christmas tournament of a horse, <laughs> and suddenly some <laughs> Jewish fellow would come barging in and just slap you warmly on the back and... <laughs> yeah, right. It'd be a Moravian, right, who who understood glass blowing, but 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 a, but a, but a wrong, a heretical version. So if you can kind of imagine the French antipathy to Algerian immigration in the seventies, or what, North and West African immigration today, right. you know, you can imagine a Paris that's car- kind of already set to explode over these issues. And so there's a lot of anti-Russian feeling, and the face of it is Diaghilev coming, setting up shop in this nice theater, and being like. We're going to do crazy Russian ballet that doesn't care about your French traditions at all. Yeah. There's also a lot of... <laughs> Mon Dieu. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't say that. He didn't right. He didn't call a press conference. No. It's, no, no, no. He just wore his hat at a jaunty angle, but it <laughs> communicated so much. Uh, he, uh, But they had to let him. He had like a P-tape of, uh, of Debussy, so they had to let the Russians mm-hmm. do what they wanted. There's also a lot of anti-Najinsky feeling because, again, he was kind of jerking it on stage during Afternoon of the Fawn. Uh, there's a lot of anti Diaghilev feeling because he's, he, he's not a purist, you know, he's right. willing to change the music if it makes the steps work and he's willing to, um, you know, add new ballet poses if, uh, even if they're not the traditional ones, you know, and, and purism is a huge thing in the arts even today. It is, but what's what? What I don't think we have that they did have then was uh, it was connected to morality exactly, and that this would have been immoral and degenerate, and uh, and pulling down the youth. I mean, I guess we do have that in terms of every successive wave of hip hop is regarded right. as you know even more uh, producing a generation of kids that that just want to snort laundry detergent. I mean, any kind of fan rhetoric will have it today where if people decide that the new Star Wars movie is insufficiently Star Wars-y, it really will be like, won't someone think of the children? Like, you know, it will immediately go to 11, even if it's about the stupidest thing. Boy, those are my people. You're like, yes, I got to get in on this one. (laughs) Uh, I hate that weed guy boner is saying that 
<laughs> the force and spaceships don't work that way. I need to tell him what the deal is. You know how I feel about midichlorians. <laughs> uh, that's just because you don't have enough. You've got midichlorian envy. <laughs> I have so many. Your midichlorian count is low. Go to your doctor and your yearly checkup and make sure he does a midichlorian count. So, yeah, but you're right. Like, there, today we wouldn't... Like, I was when I was driving here today... Uh, a cover song came on the radio. Like it was Davachka covering um, that uh, Flying Burrito Brothers song, um, Hot Burrito Number One or whatever, yeah, that, yeah, okay. that I'm your toy, I'm your own boy. Yeah. And it's kind of a plaintive, simple country thing. And this was much more of a driving beat and like a whole string section. And did it offend you? It didn't. It, no, I did not think this is degenerate art. Like right. in my head, I'm like, do I like this or not? You know, it's like you go to you go to a Shakespeare play and they've decided to update it and now it's set in the Paris Commune. Yeah, right. You think, ooh, what do I think of this choice? But you're right that back then, if Diaghilev takes a Rimsky-Korsakov piece from just a couple decades ago and does some trims, you know, people are really going to be like, is he is a bad person? Yeah, you yeah. know, it's 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 a lot more recent and it seems more fraught to them. So there's a lot of that going on as well. The Diaghilev is the guy that does not respect the purity of the arts. So all this coalesces. And as soon as the stage comes, people are ready to yell and the curtain comes up and everybody's wearing bearskins, leather jerkins and they're jerking instead of doing plies and jetés and arabesques. And I assume there's some feedback loop where a small group of people start yelling at another Somebody group goes, of people. Ah, I don't know what I think about this. Harumph, harumph. And then it, it it just escalates. Rutabaga, rutabaga. And the next thing you know, some guy's got a hat palm, a hat pin through his palm. I mean, sure, because the the, the initial reaction would be shh, silence, and then they would say, "Yes, silence. There's it doesn't deserve my respect." And then yeah, right. Pretty soon, hats are flying. It's, uh, you know, when I think about, um, this, these kind of complaints, I went, I went to see a show and the music was very, was too harsh and discordant and didn't respect tradition. And instead of like a nice thing you could dance to, people were just kind of jerking up and down. I mean, it really sounds like complaints about punk to me, you know? Right. Like, absolutely. Like, this is not, this is not beautiful. This is just for people to like, I'm seeing feelings and they're kind of angry, complicated feelings. And that's not what I'm here for. But it would be like you went to, uh, <clears throat> it would be like a bunch of Crosby, Stills and Nash fans going to a, like Lilith, Lilith fair. <laughs> and instead you get skinny puppy and, uh, Fugazi's opening for Fugazi, Sarah McLaughlin right. at, at Lilith fair in 1997 for some reason. When, and I think it's to do, it's to do with the monolithicness of culture in 1913 now you if you wanted to if you wanted to hear Sarah McLaughlin, you would not go to a Fugazi show, but then there were not that many there was one ballets kind of music. to yeah. go uh, to go see and I think you're right about context because just a couple of years later, after this whole um, fiasco, uh Rite of Spring makes its concert premiere in Paris again, the Casino de Paris. Uh, April fifth, nineteen fourteen. Subtra- uh, divorced no, from the ballet. Yeah, no dance. You just you just go see a, a conductor. Maybe Stravinsky himself. I don't know. Like conduct, uh, Rite of Spring. And in this case, it's a triumph, and he is literally carried on people's shoulders down the boulevards. Although somewhat, after the show. Uh, uh, probably as a reaction to the scandal. Maybe I think so. Because that's what everybody's going to be thinking. I'm yeah. going to a Rite of Spring premiere. Y'all know what happened last time. Um, just the way they carried Johnny Rotten on their shoulders <laughs> down the down uh, through Whitehall. 
Then that concludes the Rite of Spring Riot. Entry 1076.EZ2613 Certificate number 31616 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, there's almost no way you could be scandalized by art anymore. <laughs> We're, you're just, you're like people in our era at least are like pre scandalized about everything. But the one thing that somehow escapes anyone's attention or emotional connection is art. And I think it's because we're at the end of history. There is no more progress in art. It's just recapitulation of the old ideas, the Every, plie. Everything you see reminds you of something else. And yeah. you can't get mad about something that reminds no, you of like, something oh, else. You're like, oh, this is Tom Petty run through a Prince filter. Like, woohoo. <laughs> but as soon as... Wait, so- I kind of want to hear that. I don't know what, that, what <laughs> album that is, but could you send me that? As soon as someone says, you know, a single thing about uh, redistricting, boy, look out. The, you know... Top hats getting pounded on, sword fights. That's not funny. No. No, redistricting is nothing to... That's not funny, that's sick. Ain't nothing to have with. In our era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are currently being archived at Omnibus Project. Uh, And Ken is online being extremely entertaining. Not maybe all the way to like a Jason Isbell level of entertaining, but super, super entertaining. Jason Isbell's pretty good at Twitter. He's super good. Yeah, he's a a late arrival. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were, when he was still in short pants, you were making funnies. But it's almost, it's almost amazing that he kind of skipped the boom time of it. He did. And like, t- this is his golden age. Yeah. Like he's, he's showing up too late and being like, Hey, you guys, we can make jokes on here. He's doing, he's being killer. Uh, and you wouldn't expect it because he's, uh, you know, a Southern man. And, um, I expect it. Southern man. Not, not in that way. Not no. in the Neil Young way, but he, I, ex- I expect Southerners to have, uh, a, a, a wry Cracker Barrel take on on affairs. He's a wonderful person in person. Do you know? Do you know him? I do. I do. I know him, and I respect him, and I, you know, I, I don't know him well enough to say that I love him, but I do cherish him. Uh, I'm at John Roderick. I'm none of the above. Not funny. Not cherishable. No, everyone cherishes you. I'm perishable. Everyone cherishes your Instagram. <laughs> Instagram is Snapchat is perishable. Instagram yeah. is cherishable. Come to Instagram. Uh, and meet me there. Meet me in old Instagram. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> New Year's Eve at the stroke of midnight. I want you to meet John on That's Instagram. Right. On Instagram in 2020. And that will be when I know that we're truly in love. Uh, I'm at John Roderick there. You can email us uh, and please do at the omnibus project at gmail.com. We are beginning a, uh, a Patreon only level of omnibus which is one episode a month where we address all your criticisms and addenda to our show. So we will go through, read your letters. We, we, we give you the stage. You and, get to talk back. That's right. You, you tell us how we pronounced uh, Chillicothe wrong. You, ch- or, you just did it wrong again. <laughs> or, or whatever, but, you know, Van Heusenbergstein. You know what I got yesterday? What? It's not Swedenborgian. It's Swedenborgian. Yeah, Swedenborgian. I am never Borgian. saying. I'll t- let me tell you right now. I am never going to say Swedenborgian. Borgian. If you have like, uh, if you have like uh, bangs like a sheepdog, are you sheepdogian? Swedenborgian. <laughs> Swedenborgesque. Uh, no, that this is precisely the kind of conversation 
Although See, better. You know, we, this we, is exactly <laughs> what the bonus episodes are like. <laughs> we will have uh, regarding your letters. So if you have anything you'd like to say, if you want to suggest a show or yell at us or praise us, we prefer the praise. At least I do. Ken gets off on a little bit of frisson. Little, little conflict. A little tension. Yeah. Whereas I just like to have my hair petted and someone tell me that it's all okay. Omnibus remains a free, let me be clear, remains a free public service project for the people of, all, of all eras. True. Um, this it, is simply a addenda. If, if you want a, a, a monthly bonus episode, Patreon is the way to secure your access to that. And on that note, so you're emailing us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com and you will hear the results if you, uh, if you contribute to patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And, uh, and that will, uh, it's its own reward, first of all, but now we have a, now we have an additional reward and other levels of reward will be rolling out shortly. Maybe already have by the time you listen to this. Who the, knows? The, the, the time paradox and the grammatical tenses get very tricky. That's right. Time is a flat circle and you are somewhere on it and so are we. It's like speed skating. It's a flat circle. You're just, and when you're rooting for the, the plot of figure skating. Or speed skating. I don't know how it's going to come out. <laughs> What's uh, what? Who is the villain here? Uh, please go to. F- I cannot say. Please go to Facebook. I want you to to delete, delete your Facebook. Facebook. But if you are on Facebook, and honestly, there's only one reason to be on Facebook, which is to visit the Omnibus Futurelings page. Uh, the fans there until we until the Futurelings become themselves a single sentient organism. And develop a place on the internet where they are, they are free from Facebookian oversight, overlording, overlordish. And that's what we guarantee. That's what we guarantee. There will be no Zuckerbergian uh, infiltration (laughs) into our little uh, futurelings uh, pocket. Right. Also on Reddit, which is a version of uh, like a non-Facebook universe. It's just a version of it that's full of people that believe that um, th- there's a civilization under the North Pole. And <laughs> yeah, that was, that's why Reddit was founded. The time is a round circle. Uh, but go <laughs> to Reddit. Reddit's like, if you like Farg, but you don't think they talk enough about the hollow earth, we need a new site for that. Uh, also, you can mail us things, and we will talk about these things also on the Patreon show. Uh, mail us physical items at P.O. Box. Five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. I have here a postcard uh, of an, an, an old vintage postcard of an old KLM Royal Dutch Airlines Constellation. Oh, it's airplane. such a beautiful aircraft! Look at that. It, it really is. And the note just says, "Hey guys, thought you'd enjoy this old plane and the KLM heraldry." And we do. sure enough, we do enjoy the KLM. I do very much. You, isn't this amazing what we've created? Like this is the thing I wanted most in my life <laughs> for people just to send me postcards of beautiful old airplanes. My daughter asked me the other day, "Why does KLM?" LM represent Royal Dutch Airlines? And I said, that's a wonderful question for an eight-year-old. I don't speak Dutch, however, sweetie. Does it stand for the Dutch for Royal Dutch Airways? Royal Dutch Airways. It's like Coil Lutch Merlines? I mean, I assume L is Luft because it's a Germanic And K could be like Koenig. Yeah, Koenig. Koenig. Koenig Luft uh, Macchiato. We speak perfect Dutch. (laughs) This is just an aside, but I was standing in a TSA line a couple, a couple weeks ago with these people speaking in these speaking a very thick European something, but it seemed like it was uh, with an American accent. Yeah, and I was like, "Who are these people?" And I finally thought I'd realized, oh, 
because I could pick out words. Occasionally, they'd say passport or whatever. And finally, I was like, these people are Dutch, I bet. They're speaking a European tongue in an American accent. I bet they're Dutch. And then I listened to them for a few more minutes, and I realized they were Irish. They were speaking English with, oh. a, with a very thick Irish oh. accent. And I had... I had gotten it totally wrong. So I had I had this experience just uh, the other day. I was at I, so I interviewed the uh, the woman Megan Phelps Roper, who was one of the uh, um, members of the Westboro Baptist Church, mm-hmm. and famously on Twitter, uh, as somebody that was that was supporting she was mixing it up Westboro, and then she started talking to people in DMs on Twitter who she would single out people that would say kind of interesting things to countering her Twitter online, you know, like, well, I'm not so sure that that God does want us to protest soldiers' funerals because of, uh, like, gay life. But anyway, and so she would DM these people, and I was one of them. And she and I carried on a DM conversation for a lot of that period. And then she lost her faith. And left the church. You were back channeling people out of. You helped her defect, basically. Well, I was. And you got her out of East Germany. I was one of a small group of people she was intrigued enough by to talk to. That eventually she started to, to share her doubts about, the life that she was born into. Anyway, I interviewed her because she has a memoir called Unfollow, and I was interviewing her at the bookstore, the university bookstore, and then we started taking questions from the audience. And a woman stood up and asked a question. And she clearly was French. She was normally I don't say I li- listen to somebody for for fifteen seconds and say, "Oh well, you're French," so you know because accents are tricky. Yeah. But in this case, she was so clearly French that I was like, "Well, you know, it's an interesting question." And as a French person, you probably know that. And I made some you know generalization. And she said, "I'm Bulgarian." Oh. And I was like. You are not Bulgarian. So, but I didn't say that to her. Right? I was like, I apologize for mis uh, misgendering your accent. But then <laughs> Bulgarian's not a gender. But then after the two genders, Bulgarian and French. Afterwards, I went up to talk to her, and I was like, I, I'm just, I'm very surprised that I didn't get your Bulgarian accent. It seems like you know, it's one that I am familiar with. And she talked to me for a while, and I realized this is not a Bulgarian accent. It's a She's speaking a Bulgarian accent with an Irish brogue. Because that's who her English teacher was? Yeah. She said, well, when I left Bulgaria, I moved to Ireland and I yeah. and I learned English there. And I was, and then you could hear it. You could hear the the whole lilt. That's but, fantastic. But with a Slavic, you know, like, like bass note. And I was like, well, I should be, I mean, I still apologize, but I, I feel like I have a footnote here. She learned English from Lucky Charms commercials? <laughs> I don't usually. Are you done with your, uh, your so. part of the outro? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't usually do this, but one little postscript of our of our Rite of Spring story that I didn't get to. Oh, you're going to do this now instead of in our in our special show. Yeah, I think so. All right, go ahead. It's, it's just like a 30 second PS that like works as a postscript. Najinsky and Diaghilev. This is kind of what happened in the aftermath. Najinsky and Diaghilev had been having a romance. Uh, for quite some time that was cementing the company together. But then Najinsky decided he was going to marry a woman. Oh. And Diaghilev was furious, oh. kicked him out of the ballet ruse. Uh, and it's a sad story. Najinsky had a few ballet failures on his own and had a breakdown and spent the next 30 years in mental institutions. Oh, dear. You know, bisexuality continues to be uh, a, a controversial orientation even among uh 
alternative nation. Uh, I think it hurts Sir, a lot of people. Sergei Diaghilev was the original biphobic <laughs> ballet impresario. <laughs> we can say that for a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, Stravinsky had, had had been told he went he went on to great things and lived for wow like decades more. He lived into the forties and maybe even the. 50s? I bet he died in the 40s. But he was like 88 when he, when he died. He had been told that um, Rite of Spring was 30 years ahead of his time, and he firmly believed it. People were saying, this is what music will be in 30 years. And almost 30 years, almost exactly 30 years after Rite of Spring was written, uh, Walt Disney used Rite of Spring in Fantasia oh. to illustrate uh, a thing about dinosaurs and the, the prehistory of the Earth. But Fantasia uh, really freaked me out as a, as a seven-year-old. So... It worked. Uh, I'm only two kisses away from this experience. <laughs> well, it turned out that Stravinsky, the critics were exactly right. Like it, it, Disney put it right up there alongside Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, huh. and uh, it uh, and you know right right before a ballet piece, I think even. But and, it was really Bing Crosby that was that was shooting up the charts at the time. That's right. Yeah. But uh, but you know Stravinsky was now part of the musical can. I think he was not thrilled about having dinosaurs illustrate his. His work about pagan Slavs, but he he kept it to himself. I'm sure the royalty checks cleared. Listeners, uh, speaking to you from our distant prehistoric past, we are like the dinosaurs to you, dying slowly in the mire to the tunes of Stravinsky's Le Sacre de Printemps. From this vantage point, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive before the comet takes us out and replaces us with whatever the equivalent of tiny mammals are. We hope and pray that this catastrophe may never come, but if the disaster we fear comes soon, then this very recording may be our final word, and we will never get to Nicholas Rorick and how he almost brought down FDR's vice president. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. travel to recover from heartbreak to trace your dna escape the internet on our podcast a way to go we've been exploring all the reasons we travel i'm gerilyn gerba i'm pavia rosati and together we're the founders of travel website fab and we've already heard so many great stories such as an actress in rural kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex a graffiti artist tagging the islands of southeast asia a producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert listen to a way to go on the iHeartRadio app on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts